Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Change the World. I'm Steve Tibbet, and um, we're looking today at the campaign around the infected blood scandal. Um, and uh, the scandal goes back, you know, a long times you'll hear in the interview um, that I do, um, back to the 70s and 80s, but even before that. Um, in the 1970s and 1980s, 4,689 British haemophiliacs were treated with blood products contaminated with HIV and hepatitis C, and more than half of them have died. At, this, um, at the time, the, the, this sort of medication, which became known as Factor Eight, was imported from the US, so it was made from um, pooling the blood, of, uh, the blood plasma of thousands of, of paid donors. So they were they were paid to give their their blood plasma, and that included some as we as we hear in the interview some high risk groups, including prisoners and um, and others who who I guess needed the money. Um, and then it became apparent that if a single donor was infected with um, a virus such as HIV or hepatitis, then the whole batch of the medication um, was contaminated. Um, and there is now a public inquiry, which will, which is due to report in the, in the coming months, um, that was announced by Theresa May, the UK prime minister in 2017. And, um, so that, that's the kind of big, big thing that's happened, but it, but it is a long running and very terrible scandal. Um, my interviewee today is Jason Evans. Um, he's the director and founder of Factor Eight, which is the lead uh, campaigning organisation on this issue. And he is the lead claimant in the contaminated blood products group litigation, which is currently going before the High Court in the UK. He's also a core participant in the Infected Blood uh, Public Inquiry, which, which we just mentioned. Jason's father, Jonathan, died when Jason was just uh, four years old in October 1993. And Jonathan was infected with both, both hepatitis C and HIV from infected uh, factor eight blood products. Um, Jason also had an uncle who was infected with both viruses and died in 1996. So growing up without his father, it was during his teenage years that Jason first began to understand, as he says, that how his uh, father came to die from AIDS and he even, even what AIDS was, um, which he didn't know. So I think it's a fascinating story, but I think also more than that, in a way, it's a fascinating campaign. Um, and it's a campaign with real momentum at the moment, uh, as you'll hear. So, um, I, uh, I'll, I'll leave you with that. And, uh, here is um, the interview with Jason. Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. I'm here with Jason Evans. We're talking about the infected blood scandal and, and the campaign uh, for justice of the of the victims if that's the right word of, of that 
that terrible set of events. Uh, so uh, hello, Jason. Yeah, hi, Steve. Good to be with you. And yeah, just to start with, I mean, you know, it's 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 probably you know quite a long story, but perhaps you could just outline briefly um, how you came from being, if you like, a, a, one of the victims, one of the one of the people who suffered from the infected. Um, blood uh scandal to to becoming a, a full-time campaigner as you are now so my personal story it really begins with my dad jonathan evans he was um one of the 1250 people with hemophilia which is a blood clotting disorder um who in the 1970s and 1980s uh, was infected with hepatitis c in the 70s and then in the 1980s hiv he um died as a result of those infections when I was four years old in 1993. And he acquired those infections through a very dangerous um, blood product called Factor Eight, And obviously that's the name uh, that the campaign group has al also taken on. Now, being four years old when my dad died, um, I obviously had no idea at that age um, about what had really happened um, to my dad. And through most of my childhood, to be honest with you. And it was really, there was an incident in primary school, um, probably about year four, year five, where I was drinking out of a water fountain. And one of the girls had said, don't drink out of the water fountain. That's the AIDS boy. And I had no idea what AIDS was, didn't know what she was talking about. So that night I go home to my mom and I asked her, what's AIDS? Why are people saying this at school? And that's when my mom kind of, in a very simple way, kind of said, AIDS is something that makes people ill. Your dad has died of, died of that. And so at that point, I knew my dad had died of AIDS, but I didn't know the circumstances. I didn't know what hemophilia was. Um, and so, you know, life goes on. But it really wasn't until my mid-20s in 2015 that I decided to get involved in campaigning on on this issue and uh skipping forward now to to where you are now and and the setting up getting involved in setting up the the factor eight organization the campaign um this is a quite a, you know in some ways it's a very simple issue of justice but the actual reality of the issues we're talking about are quite complicated mm. and they existed over many years with different governments that's right. Um, different different people involved. Also, you know, private companies were involved in providing the, the factory and the, and obviously the the health services. So it's quite complicated to know. Presumably, how did you understand what to ask for within all of that soup of complex uh, sort of people to blame? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess to give a very brief overview of what the, the scandal kind of centers around it is this, this Factor 8 product. It was a blood product which came about really in the 1970s, and it was made by mixing together tens of thousands of blood plasma donations. And the manufacturer of, manufacturers of this product were largely based in the US, but they collected plasma not just from uh, prisons, uh, and other high-risk sources in the US, they also collected plasma from South America, from Africa, from Haiti, where obviously the regulation was much less. And what really makes this a scandal is that at all times it was known that every single bottle 
of factor eight was infected with hepatitis. And then obviously in the eighties, there's lots of warnings that come through about HIV, but you know, I don't, I don't want to go too much into the, to the, to the, the evidence and the complexity, but there is just one document I would point to that the inquiries looked at. That's a really important one for understanding what makes this truly a scandal. And that's that in 1953, so 20 years before the UK Department of Health places central contracts with the companies for Factor 8, in 1953, the World Health Organization warned that plasma products should not be made from any more than 20 donations and ideally less than 10. Yet 20 years after that warning, Factor 8 was made from tens of thousands of donations, yet the warnings were there. 20 years prior. So that's just one, one, one example. So, uh, like I know I've kind of delved into the, the evidence, uh, a, a, a bit there, but, um, yeah, just to yeah. bring you back. So, I mean, just thinking about in a way who to blame for all of this, yeah. as you said, there's, yeah. you know, there, there's, it goes back a long time. There's lots of players. But you've got you've got some four four quite clear demands, I think, mm. or goals on your website. But we, how did you come to those those four goals? So when um, Factor Eight was first established, you know, I guess like a lot of campaigns, it was established very loosely in the beginning, and it really wasn't anything more than a name and a Facebook group. Um, but at that time, there was one goal only, and that was to get a public inquiry, and. In the July of 2017, that goal was achieved when Theresa May announced there would finally be a, a public inquiry. And, you know, perhaps we can uh, maybe, maybe talk about all the campaign initiatives that, that went into getting that. But as of today, our campaign goals are slightly broader than that. And they also include full compensation for, for victims and families um and for the state and the pharmaceutical companies that manufactured the products to accept liability and to make an apology and then also something that's very important to a lot of people is for there to be a funded by central government a national memorial that properly reflects the gravity of what happened here we're talking about thousands of people infected and and who have died yet as it stands there is no you know, government-funded memorial, which which just seems incredible, really. Um, that, that that's the case. Presumably, on your on your way, you've got you've had help from people. Um, can you say a bit about how you, as you say, you were in this this Facebook group. You're now in a in a you know in a, not a big organisation, but you you know I think you're full time now, aren't you? Campaigning. So, you know, have there been funders? I know you've had help from MPs lawyers journalists i yeah. mean how how did they all come on board and and maybe mention some of those important ones yeah it's been it's certainly been a very very long road um so i mean in the beginning we tried to get factor eight um registered as a charity with the charity commission our only goal was to get a public inquiry and the charity commission came back and said that our primary purpose was too political to be a charity and so there was then this question about, well, what do we do? And anyway, you know, you have all these legal ways you can set up an organization. A, a, just a standard limited company didn't, didn't feel right. We, do, we didn't want to be a profit-making 
organization you have things like community enterprises and things like this but in the end we set up as a a non-profit organization which is a a a limited company but without share capital there are no shareholders you're not there to, to make a profit so in the end that's what factor eight was set up as because it gave us the freedom to 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 campaign on with that as our core focus which it seemed as though we couldn't do as our core focus with with the charity commission um so after getting set up you know setting up websites social media platforms meeting with mps and building the internal community of people that had been uh, either infected themselves or, or who had lost um their family members and you know we've done you know we took out a, a libel action against ken clark i think that was the first kind of legal action um that we took as factory and that was because ken clark had published an autobiography and um in that autobiography he spoke about the infected blood scandal and said many things which were not only incorrect about the scandal but were also incorrect about the the community of of people infected for example he said that we'd received compensation which was mm. just wrong um and and he did make changes to that book as a result so i think you know and this was probably in 2016 i think and i think that was my first taste of like actually you can even though it was a small change it was changed to a wording in the book of a politician it, it was a change that that had come about as a result of a self-funded i think we raised maybe you know 800 pounds just internally from the members and and that has been you know for the for the longest time um most most of of factor eight's funding was totally reliant on um just people internally and from public that supported the cause um now in recent times as well it's been really great that we've been able to work with the terence higgins trust who are you know the country's biggest hiv um charity and they've been doing some really helpful work um in parliament um as well so and, and and also connecting with campaigns like the hillsborough law i mean just over time i think factor eight has become although like you say it's a small organization i think we've just been able to demonstrate as a community that we are effective at making change happen um through predominantly political pressure legal pressure uh and and and, and media pressure um in addition to our own lobbying and uh, i think we've got to a place now where we do have a good you know reputation in the media in parliament and in, in the legal world is there one of those three areas that you highlighted that you think is perhaps most important legal media uh, parliament or you know they work obviously presumably they work together um and they work off each other but um is it possible to say because we've seen recently with the post office scandal which is another scandal that's some similarities i suppose with the infected blood scandal but that that's recently had a tv drama made about it mm. uh, for for our, for our listeners outside of the uk that's become that's just sort of become exponentially more well known um yeah so you know would you say that you know for instance that the media part is is more important or do you see it as is just sort of separate sort of strands that you would push um equally yeah. important i think 
what's really interesting about that is there there has been endless debate within our community about what was it that triggered the public inquiry to happen Mm. um, on the 11th of July 2017. And I think really the answer is it was a combination of three, maybe four things that happened around that time. In the run-up to July, we'd had, when Andy Burnham left Parliament, he, you know, as, as an MP, he was also a former health minister, he used his final speech in Parliament uh, in, an, in an adjournment debate to raise the subject of the infected blood scandal and to say, look, I'm leaving this place as an MP, but fellow MPs, please, this scandal, you must, you must um, get justice for these people. That was in the April. In the May, we had an episode of BBC Panorama that I'd been working on with others over a year coming up to that. So the infected blood scandal was kind of back in the ether again. Um, but then what happened in the July of 2017 is really kind of crucial. And that is in the space of a week, um, we lodged a group litigation with the High Court on the 4th of July 2017 through um, our solicitors, Colin's solicitors, on behalf of some 500 people, I believe, at the time. So there's your legal pressure. I'd been working on a story for the Daily Mail, which was from evidence I'd been gathering from the National Archives, which showed that um, some people had been basically deliberately infected with hepatitis C in order for um, some individuals um, within the medical profession to be able to use those people for research to try and develop a test for hepatitis C, um, which I, I say some of this stuff quite casually now, I think because I'm so used to Absolutely. saying it and deal with the evidence. But, it, but you know, it, it, and I know it's shocking because to my surprise, um, that story actually hit the mail's front page on the 4th of July, same day we lodged the group legal action. And as a result, that story was mentioned on, it was on the Sky News press preview. It was discussed in the House of Commons. Um, and then also that week, importantly, um, you know, MP Dame Diana Johnson, a journalist called Caroline Wheeler, and a number of people within, uh, within the community, including myself, have been discussing this, an all-party letter, which happened. And so this was basically a letter that was signed by the leader of each political opposition party in parliament um saying there should be a public inquiry and of course theresa may's government at that time was she just lost you know the, the the majority and they needed the dup and the dup were on board to support as well so you had the legal pressure you know big you know we're back in the media again from perhaps the first front page infected blood scandal news story you know on a national paper in at least years. I mean, if maybe even a decade or two, I, d I don't know, but a long, long time. And we've got this all party letter. And then, you know, a week to the day later, you, we've got the public inquiry being announced. Now, ultimately, when the inquiry was announced, the health minister, Philip Dunn, he said the reason the inquiry was being announced was due to new evidence and allegations of, of, criminal action which is what Andy Burnham had been saying he said there's been a cover-up uh, a criminal cover-up on an industrial scale yeah, Andy so Burnham being the, he's he was an MP but he, and a minister but he was he's now the mayor of Manchester 
yes and still you know very much um supporting our campaign um and he, he was also pivotal pivotal in raising um the campaign around the hillsborough um campaign which was a a football um stadium crush yeah. um scandal yeah yeah which we've covered in the podcast um so so w with all of that um i mean it's, it sounds like you needed an it's, luck is probably the wrong word because in a sense you made your own luck but you needed things to come together it sounds like a sort of alchemy a campaigning alchemy uh, I, I think to, to make right. things to unlock things and move them forward yeah i think the stars really needed to align because you know arguably would the politicians have been as inclined to sign that letter if we didn't have the media attention and likewise would we have got the media attention if it wasn't for the fact that we could say we're bringing this group legal action and we can you know so all these things are kind of intertwined and it, it's difficult to I, I don't think you can say it was just one thing i think right. it was just all of these things coming together and of course all of you know those campaigners in our community that are backing this stuff and writing to their mps to get them on board it's just it was a huge effort from from a lot of people yeah okay um I, I wanted to ask you, but you mentioned the the um, the, the inquiry, which is which was that your main aim, as you said, and and remains, you know, the, the key. I guess the key, one of the key victories of the campaign so far. Well, in relation to that, I mean, do you does that sort of take the wind out of your sails in a way because you've got a big chunk of what you wanted? people sort of think oh that's done now it's ticked off like if you're an mp saying well we've got the inquiry we don't need to spend too much time with these people anymore because the inquiry will report and then mm. will lead to action so in a way is it a bit of a double-edged sword or do you you know or do you think um well yeah just that question really yeah i suppose i suppose a little bit of the time we had to because although now it's easy to kind of just look back and think, oh, we got the inquiry. At the time, I'm not sure anyone really believed we would actually get it to happen. Um, but we did. And so, yeah, I mean, I certainly had to go back and rethink, well, what, what are our goals now? And so I think the focus did change then um, to, you know, getting the inquiry to the right shape. Because, you know, when the, first, when the inquiry was first announced, there was a lot of discussion about it potentially being, being a Hillsborough-style panel, which would basically have meant it didn't have statutory, it couldn't compel documents. And look, and look there, are, there are pros and cons to both. And I, you know, I won't get into the nitty-gritty of all that, but we felt for us, we needed a judge-led public inquiry that had the, the legal powers to, to get documents and evidence. And look, since then... Until, you know, only last year, I, I spent a lot of my time working on the inquiry in terms of reading all of the witness statements, putting forward questions for every witness and trying to tie up certain parts of the story and putting that forward to the inquiry and, and also continuing to highlight key pieces of evidence um, through, through the media. And then as we got to 2020, that's when there was really... Um, a significant shift in focus in terms of uh compensation which you know i i can go go into that now or yeah we might come back 
We'll just probably take a, a, a short break. We'll be back with Jason Evans. We're talking to Jason Evans and the Infected Blood uh, campaign. Um, Jason, one of the things that I was wondering about the campaign is, and we were talking earlier about, you know, the media space and all of that, and you've had this sort of post office, you know, scandal blowing up. Um, other campaigns, you know, take the airspace, as it were, from time to time. Is there any sense of competition between you guys you know different campaigns you think oh you know hillsborough's hogging the limelight or does it, i mean that obviously i'm making it very a crude sort of point but how do you deal with you know dealing with journalists and mps and all of the same people that are trying that you're trying to grab their attention and do you ever sort of feel well it's you know you're looking at the wrong thing i mean i personally don't see it that way because as we've seen recently with with the post office scandal um was really in the limelight for at least one going on almost two two weeks i think and you know there were certainly people within our community that saw things that way they saw it as um i've i've always tried to maintain an outlook that just because a person or an organization is getting something whether that's media attention or whatever doesn't mean something is being taken away from me as an individual or factor eight as an organization and in fact i think what i saw with the post office scandal was that as a result of the post office being in the media it drove our web traffic went right shut right up at that time the inquiries we got coming in from the media in, in you know i was expecting a quiet start to january mm. But it said it's been extremely busy. Lots of media inquiries coming in. And I think that's just because, honestly, I think it's almost because of the word scandal, post office scandal. And that just that word has reminded all those journalists in the media, the MPs, oh, there's where have I heard scandal? Oh, the infected blood scandal. Um, so look, as far as I'm concerned, it's it's only been helpful. And I think one of the really um good things that I've been able to do in the campaign is to connect with other campaigns um in particular the the hillsborough law now campaign which is a campaign for a particular piece of legislation which is designed to stop cover-ups um it it would do a number of things which in brief you know for me the top two things are a duty of candor on all public officials basically they have to tell the truth at the first time of asking when there's been a scandal a, a, a major disaster um and also a parity of legal arms at things like inquiries and inquests, because all too often, as we've seen in our inquiry, you know, we have to make applications for legal funding every time, whereas the state has an endless public purse to go to. And so through being involved in that campaign, I've been able to connect with lots of other campaigns, you know, such as the, the Primados, which was a, 
uh, a pregnancy testing drug which could cause birth defects, the nuclear testing veterans campaign. Um, there's, there's just, I'm sure there's many others, but you know, there's lots of these different campaigns are, are coming together under, under one banner. Yeah. Um, and that's been really helpful and, and, and it's, there's a community spirit, but what, what I will say on the other side, I know from speaking to lots of these, um, campaigns that even internally, you know, it's, it's easy to think there's one infected blood scandal campaign. There's one Grenfell, uh, fire campaign. There's one Hillsborough. You, you tend to find there are different kind of groups and factions within yeah. all these things. And you do, you know, you do get internal issues. Mm. Um, in you know from speaking to all these other campaigns within all these things um for all for all kinds of reasons unfortunately you know people have different views yeah on what routes should be taken on what should or shouldn't be said in the press um some people can become annoyed if a particular campaign is getting media attention or credit for something and and they're not and yeah those things can be an issue and you know over the years i've Take, well, a golden rule number one, I, I would say for those things is just not to enter into arguments on the internet. Mm. I think all too often the kind of endless arguments that people can get wrapped into online or impressions they can form by being isolated online, when those things are actually addressed in person or they see each other in person, or if they have the understanding of speaking to the other campaign or person, it's it's a much... Uh, different story yes no, i think that's good advice um just thinking about um other campaigns and other um sort of examples around the world and i know that because we're, we're not the only country to have been affected by this type of scandal i think but i think there've been more the other countries there've been sort of successful for instance legal cases i i, I think i read about france canada and japan yeah have you been in touch with those, those, I mean, are there similar setups there, similar campaigns? What, what have you learned from, from those other examples? Yeah. So in, in the U S I think the, the campaign for truth and justice in terms of infected factory blood products is, is largely over. That's, that's my, my impression. Um, one of the first things I did when I kind of, began campaigning was to get in touch with um two you know really great people in the u.s eric weinberg who's a lawyer and donna shaw who uh is a, is a journalist um used to work at the philadelphia inquirer i believe she's now a, a college um pr professor lecturer and they actually wrote a book together called blood on their hands about this issue that's that's a really amazing book actually um and, and if anyone wants to understand this issue I, you know I, I highly recommend it um so in the US, you know, um, the pharmaceutical companies paid $100,000. The government paid $100,000 in compensation. But there were also hundreds of private settlements, many in the multi-million dollars for individual victims and families. Um, in France, you had um, people go to jail over this. There was a guy called um, Jean-Pierre Alain, and uh, he, he received a prison sentence um, for allegedly you know allowing infected products uh to to be given to people um oddly enough there's a whole other off offshoot about him or well, when he was in prison in france in the early 90s for this he was still being paid 
by the NHS. Mm. Um, I won't pretend to know all the ins and outs, but I've certainly seen from the media clippings at the time that that was an issue. Um, and it, in France, yeah, there, there, there has been some level of compensation. There have been numerous criminal prosecutions. Uh, in Japan, there were criminal prosecutions. The government and the pharmaceutical companies entered into a 50-50 compensation agreement. Um, and I believe each family received something like half, half a million dollars equivalent at the time. But this was all decades ago. And in particular in Japan, there's there's video, which is very moving actually of the the executives who were responsible there for, for knowingly distributing infected blood products mm. there's within japanese culture i can't remember the name of it but it's almost like a traditional thing that happens if you really wrong somebody and and there's video where they actually kind of bowed down on the floor apologizing to the families um and it's it's very moving but mm. you hear all of that and then meanwhile, here in the UK, nothing. Um, well, uh, you say nothing, but I wanted to ask you about the, not the specifics of the compensation scheme, but because my understanding is there was a sort of interim compensation. And then that, but I, I, yeah, so I, th I think, and my understanding as well, there was legal advice given for sort of, for some people to accept that is that right did that muddy the waters with the campaign at all so with the compensation that's happened here and yeah things have changed you know in in very recent times so yeah. in january of 2020 uh myself and others we went to a meeting in the cabinet office with uh, oliver dowden who was then paymaster general uh, nadine doris who was health minister at the time and Sue Gray was there, who is a household name now, but mm. she wasn't at the time. And at that meeting, I put forward to Oliver Dowden that the government should begin working now on a framework for compensation so that we don't get to the end of the inquiry and then waste years arguing about, well, what does yeah. compensation even look like? But was there not a prior compensation scheme to that? Or was that not right? So before all of this, there hadn't been compensation. Um, but what there had been was in going all the way back to 1990, the government um, airing out of, I suppose you could say, a, a legal action then established a charitable trust called the McFarlane Trust, um, which provided not compensation, but, but uh, ex gratia payments is what the government called it. And that provided, uh, I believe, an average of £23,000 to people who had been infected with HIV and for all intents and purposes were, were going to die, as most of them did, um, of AIDS. But one of the many problems with that whole situation was that it was done to end litigation, litigation in which there hadn't been full disclosure litigation in which victims were made to sign an agreement saying they would never sue again not just for hiv but also hepatitis c before they'd been told that they all had hepatitis c and the government knew that and the documents showed the government knew that for a long time made them sign that waiver and then told them after they'd signed it that they also had hepatitis c so that previous litigation is just so scandalous mm. and, and a large part of the group litigation now obviously because this issue has been litigated previously 
part of um that one of the barriers for us to um get over is is that as to why that litigation uh, shouldn't stand and we say it's unconscionable that that it should it's difficult isn't it because you know i'm just thinking about the role in in relation to campaigning of legal advice so is it fair to say that it could be a bit of a minefield you know you get one set of legal advice over here and then then later on it proves that that wasn't great advice how do you navigate that as a campaigner yeah there was um there was a lot of things that were not done correctly um in that litigation um some of which i i can't say because it's bound by a non-disclosure agreement with the inquiry in, in terms of certain documents that that i've seen but but you know in terms of what is public um a lot of things were not done correctly in that litigation the the the, the biggest one of which was the non-disclosure of information that government knew the state knew but the claimants did not know that was material um to to that to that litigation and i think you know advice um that people were given um to accept that was not correct and maybe um it it wasn't correct for a number of reasons but one of them is that there wasn't um foreknowledge of of the material one of the really interesting things in the way in which that litigation ended is that the government announced that um there was this offer to settle this litigation this litigation was going to be settled before the claimants before the victims had even been asked do you want to settle it before they even knew a settlement was on on the table hmm. in the house of commons the government are kind of announcing it's basically all over which in itself is is just not correct and and you can see in their documents they talk about how you know by doing that it, it will basically exert the pressure to get this done and dusted and over with i'm just thinking about your um your particular situation and uh yeah obviously you're personally involved you know you, you, it, with the, with the campaign on a substantive basis but from what you've learned so far in the in the past 10 years or so of campaigning um what what sort of lessons would you pull out for for other campaigns perhaps similar types of campaigns but are in an earlier stage you know they're just forming they form their facebook group or whatever it is and it, you know it might be local campaigns or might be national ones or international, but you know, are there are there one or two or three things that you can advise people to think about when they're setting up? You know, in order to you know learn from your mistakes as well as your successes. Yeah. What would you What would you advise? I think um, before trying to become an expert in anything, the f the first thing I would say is just attitude can mean everything. I think. And what I mean by that is um, it's very easy for people if they if they reach out to an MP and ask them to do something and, and they don't hear back quickly or maybe they, they don't get a response at all to think my MP is a terrible person and he doesn't care about the issue that's, that means the most to me. And I think actually a lot of people don't appreciate what life is like as as an mp which you know i don't know firsthand but i know what i've seen 
and then it's very busy it's very hectic you're reliant on your staff to do jobs and, and things not going into your spam folder and that actually for people that their go-to is to email an mp but if you can actually instead don't email your mp go and see them at their local surgery person to person build the personal relationship that can make all the difference and likewise if you reach out to a, a journalist saying why aren't you covering this issue uh, or trying to get them to cover an issue and, and at first they don't people can have a tendency to blame the journalist or the publication you know the amount of people that say oh the mail is this kind of paper this you know and and write off a whole paper based on one journalist or one article uh people i think are very quick to to do that and i've always tried to take the approach if i if i reach out if i pitch a newspaper or or a broadcaster with a story or an angle and they're not interested in it a you can just go somewhere else rather than burning a bridge by being angry at them on twitter about why aren't you covering my thing um but also is to try and be objective and say do you know what maybe the way i pitched that story just wasn't good maybe the story just isn't strong enough for a general audience so to try and be objective so just attitude and even when you know you get turned down for something or something doesn't go right to just be cordial and friendly with mm. with people still i think that goes a long way so that that would be the first thing um and i think secondly you know with media media is so crucial and i think we live in a time where you can't expect a journalist to do in-depth investigatory work into something they don't know will pay off for a story which wasn't already on their agenda that they have a personal interest in anyway so you know one of the main ways i've been able to get lots of stories into the media is by doing all of that legwork for the journalist i will find the three documents or four or five documents that tell a part of the story because you can never tell with something as big as the infected blood scandal you can't tell it all in one article it's just not possible yeah. So I'll do that investigation bit for them, draft, you know, the article and then say, here's basically everything you just need to do, you know, check the facts, double check the sources. Maybe you want to go and get an interview with these particular people to weave into the story to make it more interesting. So do as much work as you can for the journalist or whoever it is. Make their life easy to do the story because and and that's the same with an mp you know have a particular ask a lot of people will write a three-page essay to an mp mm. doesn't even ask them to do anything whereas all you really need is a paragraph that says please will you write to this minister asking them x and and you're more likely to get a better response you know i could go on and on but i, I think just those things alone mm. you know are, have been crucial for for me personally well that's very useful thanks jason um Maybe a final question is, do you foresee a time when you can do something else with your life? That is a very good question. Um, I mean, I certainly hope so. Um, you know, during the course of this campaign, while I've been campaigning, you know, I, I would love to um, be able to help other campaigns or to, to be involved in campaign journalism for other other causes when this is done and i know realistically that's not possible with the the time that 
this particular campaign requires but yeah. i certainly hope that time will come and i, and I hope it's uh, sooner rather than later well jason it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and i really hope that you do get uh, justice for for yourself and for the families and and the, and the victims well, thank you and uh, yeah best of luck um i appreciate it thank you well, thanks for listening. As usual, please do leave a review and subscribe to this podcast, 100 Campaigns That Change the World. Tell your friends about it. Um, and please do write in and give me ideas. You can do that through the through the um, website. Um, um, music is by Alex Gordon. Sound design is by Solomon Collins. And I uh, hope to see you soon for another episode. Thank you and goodbye.